So we now, we now are recording this session and I will make that available to all participants afterwards. And as per usual with our reading forums, we will also make a podcast uh, available freely to the wider community on our podcast channel of the audio only. So I'd like to start by welcoming our first creator uh, to present, and that's Ian Travaskas. Ian is a former primary school teacher. He is an award-winning children's author who has had a number of picture storybooks and YA novels published both nationally and internationally. Ian is going to share with us about his new book of boys and boats. Welcome to Ian. Thank you very much and uh, thank you for the invitation to speak today. I know I've got a, only a short time, so hopefully I'll get through everything I want to. Um, of Boys and Boats has been published by Ford Street Publishing, um, a small independent publisher in Melbourne who just recently, one of their authors won Picture Book of the Year, which is great. So um, hopefully this one's going to do as well. So um, of Boys and Boats, was begun back way back in about 2011 and um, it's taken this long to get to publication because um, like a lot of my stuff other things interrupted um, other novels other story books whatever and i thought i might start excerpts from chapter one just so you get a bit of a flavor of what the book's all about. I'm going to try and share a screen here and I hope this works. Let me know if you can see something. All good. I'm not hearing anyone. Sorry, Ian, that's fine. It's just about to share. There it is. All good. Okay, here we go. Because I'm going to just try and as I'm reading, I might just flick through a few slides. So this is from chapter one, Torch Relay. The story is set in 1956, November 1956, and um, the Olympic torch is being run from Darwin to Melbourne. So this group of kids has uh, decided they'll have their very own torch relay around the block. It was And this is uh, Jack Spiller, the main character, speaking. It was dark in the street. The only light came from the flaming torch I held aloft. By the time I rounded the corner, the stitch was worse. Near Bailey's woodyard, I faltered and slowed down to a jog. Here, the lights blazed brightly. I could see piles of wood stacked and ready for delivery. I quickly scanned the yard, hoping Bruiser Bailey wasn't lurking behind one of the wood piles. He was the local thug and had earned the nickname because of his sadistic delight in terrorising the local kids. Bruiser was a couple of years older than me and was massive and brutal. It had been Percy's idea to have our own Olympic torch relay. We can run around the block each night while the real one's being run from up north, he'd suggested on our way home from school one afternoon. We can run it, I joked. What do you mean, we? Yeah, well, you know what I mean. He shrugged and looked down at his calipers. Percy and I had been good mates since primary school, and we spent mo most weekends down at the river fishing for eels or searching for birds' nests. He went on and on about his idea all the way home. And the more I thought about it, it actually sounded like a fun idea, especially as the real Olympic torch would arrive soon at the Melbourne Cricket Ground for the start of the 1956 Olympic Games. So it was agreed. Percy made an Olympic torch out of an old plum pudding tin. 
He poked a piece of a broom handle through a hole he'd cut in the bottom of the tin and stuffed it with rags soaked in kerosene. It didn't look anything like the real thing, but it worked a treat. I was almost at the end of my lap, and I could see the other kids milling around under the streetlight across the road from Mad Mick's place. A dusty cloud of moths swarmed and surged under its buttery light. My side felt like it was going to burst and spill my guts all over the street. I didn't want them to see how much I was hurting, so I grit, gritted my teeth and kept running. As I approached his weatherboard cottage, I saw the dark shape of old Mad Mick deep in the shadows of his veranda. Even though he'd lived in our street forever, he never left his house. I once heard Beryl, the woman who cleaned his house and did his shopping, tell Mum that Mick had been to the Great War. Was blown up on the Western Front, she said. Lucky to be alive, he is. Half his face is gone. Has to speak through the side of his mouth. He's half mad, too, you know, Beryl claimed. He sits in his kitchen all day, staring out the window, mumbling away to someone called Clive. Doesn't hardly ever speak to me. It's as if I'm not even there. He's one crazy old bugger, she said. So there's some extracts from uh, chapter one, just to give you a flavour and a bit of a taste. And it also um, introduces most of the main characters in the story. So um, basically, that's what the story's about. 1956, Jack Spiller um, and his mates, Percy. Percy, of course, uh, is a polio sufferer, so he gets around in calipers. And the other uh, friend is Heinrich. He's the new kid who has uh, is a post-war immigrant. He's a German Jew um, whose family escaped the war and flew, uh, fled to Switzerland. So um, basically, um, how am I going for time? Plenty. Basically, this, um, I thought I might just give a quick synopsis of the story and um, that might be it. So Mad Mick is the old recluse who lives in the same street as Jack, hasn't been seen for years, never comes out of the house. Um, so of course he's got this reputation of being mad um, and he doesn't look very nice because of the scarring from the war. He, uh, he went off to the Great War mainly because his younger brother Clive had enlisted um, so he thought he should go and just protect his brother. Uh, when he left, he left behind Edith Palmer, his fiancée, and the half-built sailboat, that, which is in the shed, uh, covered in sheets. When he comes back after the war, he's, uh, he's been blown up, his brother's been killed, and he gets back, and uh, Edith, his fiancée, isn't waiting for him at the Geelong train station. So he goes to the hospital where spookily she is dying from the spanish flu and she dies hence uh, he becomes a recluse the boat to him he calls it his bastard boat because it's got too many bad memories in uh, 1956 jack and heinrich discover the unfinished boat and decide they might have a go at finishing it mick doesn't want to have anything to do with the boat but he does a deal with jack to uh if jack will come and read because his eyesight's bad if Jack will come and read uh, each night after school, he'll uh, give them the key to the shed and they can finish the boat, uh, which was fun because I know nothing about boat building. 
So um, I had to do a hell of a lot of research to get it right. And this is a wooden boat. Um, and I did find a contact in Melbourne who knew a bit and helped me. So um, they start to work on the boat. Heinrich's a bit of a know-it-all. He does a lot of uh, reading. And um, it's all going well until um, Bruiser and his gang break into the shed one night and steal the boat plans, which they're using to help them, and also um, the album, mix album, that he keeps in a trunk in the shed, which has all these photos of his time with Edith, uh, time when he was on the farm, where he came from. Um, so Jack and Heinrich and Percy and uh, Jack's love interest, Anna DeFazio, um, they concoct a plan with Mixhelp to um, retrieve the album and the boat plans from the gang's hideout down by the river. And I've totally lost track of where I am with these slides. Um, this is Jack's dog, Skip. This is Jack and Skip. <clears throat> um, Jack's... Um, father, by the way, he's in Geelong Hospital in the infectious diseases ward because he has TB. He, um, he'd been a heavy smoker and a heavy drinker, in fact, an alcoholic. So Jack's got this other issue where he's worrying about when his father gets out of the hospital, what he'll be like, whether he'll get back on the grog, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, in between building the boat, they go to the local beach, Bankura Beach, is where I spent a lot of my childhood, and they teach Heinrich to body surf. Jack takes Anna, Anna and himself to a little beach near Eastern Beach in Geelong. This was Parkside Beach. And um, that was fun to write that chapter because Anna is stung by a jellyfish and Jack uh, uses quite a novel way to relieve her pain when he tells her he has a, a remedy and then he wishes he hadn't because uh, it means he's got a kiss on her leg. And... Uh, that was quite a fun chapter, right? So anyway, they retrieve the um, they retrieve mix mix album, which has all his memories in it, but uh, discover the plans have been burnt. But the fact that they retrieved the album, Mick um, agrees then that he will help them finish the boat. So just before they're getting close to Christmas, Christmas comes and goes. They get the boat finished. They all go down early one morning with their families to uh, launch Edith's dream, named after Edith, the um, Mad Mix fiance. And they successfully launch the boat. They sail around the Corio Bay for a bit, and then uh, Bruiser appears in a little tinny, tries to run them down. So Jack has to. Um, Jack has to. Um, overcome his fear of Bruiser, and he deals with Bruiser, who ends up in the bay, and they go back to the um, back to the marina. And as this um, final bit of the of the blurb reads, it's um, even though it's an adventure, it does touch on a lot of um, issues that were issues even in 1956. Things like bigotry, intolerance bullying, loss, grief, and, of course, personal aspirations. But when I wrote it, it was real, really um, based on a lot of things I did in my childhood around Geelong. 
I never peed on a girl's leg. Um, but also, um, it was purely and simply a, an adventure story with a, an historical angle. And the book started out, well, I found this when I was going through my notes with a, um, I was going to write a short story and I was using um, these memory cards, which another author had suggested I do many years ago, where you just write a memory every day on an index card. So I, I was using them and I was writing uh, basically a short story. Then I left it for a while. Then about five or six years ago, or five years ago, I received a May Gibbs Creative Time Fellowship to work on the book. So I had a month in Adelaide. They gave me an apartment. And um, these are just some of the scene cards I used. There were like, I ended up with 60 of those. That's how I sort of organise the, um, the plan for the book as I go or before I write anything. And the beauty of this book, if you um, go to Ford Street Publishing, um, we have developed quite a lot of teacher resources based on the book. Unfortunately, the photos I took of them aren't the best, but there's, um, there's a bunch of curriculum links there, so they meet the outcomes, and they're all listed. There's um, themes for discussion, such as friendships, bullying, dreams and aspirations, post-war immigration, World War I, uh, some research topics. And the book has had some quite, um, quite nice reviews in its short time that it's been out there. Um, um, which um, have been nice to read. I haven't heard, read any bad ones yet. Hopefully there won't be any of those, but um, there have been quite a few good reviews. Um, Stella liked it, which is um, handy at um, Children's Book Council. And finally, um, I should mention that I am available for author visits, book talks, workshops, whatever. Um, if you're interested, if you contact um, Paul Collins at Creative Net Speakers Agency, he can organise it. And that's uh, no cost as far as the booking fee. And that's probably my 15 minutes, is it? I think it's very close, Ian. That's excellent. There's a question in the chat. Someone has asked uh, the target age group for the book. Okay, it's uh, 12 plus, 12 years plus. We did have a lot of, um, I was never sure when I was writing it whether this was older teenagers or younger teenagers. Um, and so there was a lot of discussion initially because some of the language was quite rich. We decided to go a little bit downscale, if you like. But I was still surprised at what some of the language I was allowed to use. <laughs> uh, things change. Um, yes. Erin Erin has actually made a comment in the chat that she has used the book with her sevens and eights. Um, oh, great. Who have been uh, reading Private Peaceful, so interested in it from a war perspective. And someone else has said that they're using it in upper primary. So it's um, it probably has that lovely overlap between upper primary and yeah. early secondary. And all readers are different. You can never be sure. Um, thank you very much. That was excellent. We're going to scoot right along. So I might get, if you don't mind, um, unsharing your screen. Thank you very much for what you've presented. I'm sure everyone will find it very useful. Is that gone?
Yes. I, oh, no, almost. No, you've got your screens. Uh, so you need to, if you hover over it, it'll give you an option to stop sharing. Oh, yes. Sorry. So we can still see this lovely landscape. That's the one. Yes. Cornish <laughs> Thank coastline. Thank, Thank you, you very much. That's lovely. So thank you to Ian and I want to move on. I'd like, I'd firstly uh, like to introduce my two colleagues that are going to join me for the panel discussion. So we, we're going to do a little bit of a discussion and then back to our next guest. So our, my two panelists uh, joining me are Ty Kadanar. Ty has been a teacher librarian and has wide experience in the areas of marketing and publicity with a range of publishers as well as AFLW and AFL Kids. She's currently a bookseller with Readings, a judge for the Readings Children's Prize and responsible for SLAB's social media platforms. Erin uh, Wamala is uh, also uh, joining us. She has a history of working in marketing also in the education sector, in publishing and also in bookselling. She is currently a teacher librarian at Trinity Grammar School and the current judge of the Older Readers category in the CBCA Awards. Welcome to Erin and Ty. Are you both here? Oh, look, you're getting claps. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how this is going to work. What we're going to try and do, everybody, is Erin and Ty and I are going to try and uh, discuss the different issues that we'd like to raise with you this afternoon. And it's lovely to see so many of you here clapping. Um, and, uh, and then we've got three separate sections where we're going to discuss three different areas in relation to our topic. So the first one is how do you give a good book talk? And I think I mentioned earlier that most people think this is an easy skill. But while anyone can talk about a book, making it engaging and interesting, having it work uh, is not easy, I don't think at least. It takes practice, it takes effort, and it, it requires extraordinary knowledge, I think, to do really well. So I'd like to hear from Ty and Erin, and I'm not sure how we're going to do this in order, but uh, about hints, strategies um, and on what they would suggest, what you need to do to prepare and what you need to think about in relation to creating a good book talk. Who's going to go first? Erin, do you mind if I go first? <laughs> no, go for your life. Awesome. Um, so I think you're right about knowledge, Susan. I think Erin and yourself would probably both agree with me. The more you know about things that they're interested in, the better chance of success you're going to have. So it's not just having, you know, a very broad knowledge of titles available or, you know, new books coming out. I think it's partially um, success is attributable to being knowledgeable about all areas of pop culture and things that kids are interested in. So, you know, the, the YouTube videos that are trending, the video games that they're playing, what they're watching on whatever platform they're choosing to watch it on. I think that's probably been the key to my success, being able to compare a book to something that they might know as a video game has probably been my most successful strategy with boys. I think, Erin, what what do you think? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think um, I use that particularly when talking one-on-one. -on -one. Um, although, you know, occasionally if I know that there's something that's 
really popular at the time. I will therefore pull a whole lot of books together that might relate to that. So, you know, just recently, of course, around Black Lives Matter, you know, I could just listening to the kids talking in the library, um, it's all they were kind of talking about. So I just pulled together. Of course, we have a, a heap of books like The Hate You Give and Long Way Down and all these books surrounding that issue. So I pulled them all together and talked about them. And because it was front of their mind, um, they really went for them. And we kind of couldn't keep them off on the shelf, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think my other thing would be, and it seems it seems so, so obvious, but I think it's worth reminding people of is um, that you have to read the books that you talk about. <laughs> like I can, I can, I can, um, you know, I can wing it occasionally. <laughs> talking about stuff but it never makes as big an impression as if I've actually read the book and can talk about how it makes me feel um, and you know as a reader and therefore you know the kinds of kids who are actually going to enjoy it as well there's I don't think there's anything that can that compares to that and it's hard because it's really hard to keep on top of everything that's you know coming in and going out but um, I think it's definitely essential. Agreed I would find that Erin you're lucky that you can wing it I cannot. And even, you know, in the library or the bookstore, even when I've tried to pretend that I've read something, I've gotten a few sentences in and had to confess, no, look, I haven't read this, but my colleague read it and they really liked it. Um, I'm, I'm the same. You know, you have to read it. You have to be reading what you want them to read because you can't be passionate about something if you don't know it properly, I guess. It's very true, and I think what and I think what you've also got to remember, and um, what we've all got to remember, is unless you've built up that knowledge base of a number of texts over a long period of time, you can't make those connections as well. So, in the same way as that you're going to make connections to popular culture or what's happening in the news at the moment or whatever, you also need to be making connections for them to other books that you have read that they might have read. And it's like one big interconnected, you know, connected grid, I think. Um, and for them, if you can say, well, if you really enjoyed this, you're going to love this, you know, mm. and that's mm. a wonderful connection for them. Um, I, I often think it is all about relationships between everything all coming together perfectly. Because in the same way, if you can get up and say, um, Oh, you know your friend. You know your, your friend Jerry. I know he loved this book. So if you know you like what Jerry liked, you're going to like it as well. So again, it's another element to all this relationships and the way you connect everything together. And mm. you can't do that unless you know the books, know the background of those books and the things that came before them. Um, so you might be it might be a fantasy, and you know the other fantasies that it's referring to and that it relates to, and you can make a picture for them that makes it all make sense. And the readers, and uh, I think everything, as you said, it's happening out there in the popular world as well. It's one like one great big map, mm. and you've got to hold it all in your head at the same time. And then the skill, and the skill for me is then you've got to condense that down. And say it in as short a possible time as you possibly can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> True. And that's something else I do when you're talking about those maps and those connections. I actually, I have I have this spreadsheet <laughs> that I keep that with tabs like um, Percy Jackson. And then every time I come across something that's referred to as being for fans of Percy Jackson or if you might like that, I put it in there. And very soon you end up with this 
list and like and I'm constantly kind of watering them in and getting them and then you can do like a, a presentation all and stuff for fans of Percy Jackson or you know of Divergent or whatever it is um, but it makes it easier you don't have to actually remember them all at the same time I guess. <laughs> Because eventually it just gets too many. You know, it does. It's a, a, <laughs> great, a great tool to be doing. I mean, obviously we're librarians, so we can be using the library catalogue to do this for us too. But you're not always. Oh, yeah, sure. But you're not always the person cataloguing the book, you know. So keeping your own yeah. list is a fantastic idea. Um, I mentioned already keeping it brief. I mean, I would like to say mention that again. Um, I have seen people um, kill a book by overselling it. And so if you've already got a, a, a talk ready, my advice would be to cut it in half <laughs> and, and make it even shorter because their attention, all of our attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter all of the time. Um, and I, I, can't, I don't think I can say that enough, keeping it brief. Finding the hook, finding the hook that you really want to mention to drag them in is probably the key. Um, other thoughts from either of you about how you structure that actual talk and what you might do within it? I think definitely having an elevator pitch ready. Um, yeah, that's particularly with boys. Like if you're, if you give them more than eight sentences, they're not listening to you anymore. They're just like, no, too, too much talk. Um, one little trick that I use if I'm trying to sell a book really quickly is I'll insinuate in some way that the book may have once been banned or <laughs> it has never been banned i will actually this is something i use when i'm talking about hover car racer when i was in my school library um and now i use it in the bookshop i will say to you know the reader in front of me that i'm trying to pitch the book to this was the most stolen book from my <laughs> And they immediately want to read it. So, you know, this is the book that is never returned. Or if you insinuate in some way that there's an illicit sort of element, they suddenly want it, particularly at a certain age. That's wonderful, actually. I, I can remember <laughs> telling them that, uh, yes, that certain books were not approved of by other teachers. Like I'd say, oh, well, you're, you're, you're English teacher, you know, doesn't like this book. Um, I, I've also had success in the same way with that, with telling them the stats that are happening in the library. This is the most borrowed book, you know, that everyone wants. Um, and I think that really helps. That's great. Shouldn't be telling them fibs, Ty. <laughs> well, it's not always untrue. Of course not. Anything, <laughs> anything else either of you can add to this idea of how you structure it? Erin, I've got a note here about your game of loans. Was that something you were going to mention? Oh, um... Uh, possibly, yeah, I could. Was it in this section? No, I'm not sure. Section, I've had that written down. I've had that written down here. Oh, oh, is that the um? I forgot. Actually, sorry that my the um PowerPoint presentation that that I was showing you the other day. Um, I can show you that if you like. So when we were um, on doing online learning, I had to think of a way to get the boys to to look at books without having all the books in front of us. So usually when I do a reading kind of competition, I guess, or a challenge, I have all the books in front of us um, so they can actually go and, you know, pick them up and look at them. But I had to try and figure out how to do that without having that ability, I suppose. So I um, I created a Bitmoji classroom, so I'm not sure um, had a go at that and it was actually really really fun I probably spent way too much time on it but I'll just I'll share my screen so I can 
um, show you. Sorry, my internet's a little jumpy. I hope it's okay. Can you see that okay? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good. Okay. So the the idea behind um, this is that they I created these slides and they um, they're interactive slides. So you've got all these doors that go to different genres. So if they click on a door, it takes you into a room. Um, and in the room um, are all the titles there and each of those covers so for for my reading challenge I give them lists of books that they have to choose from so they they can't just choose anything they have to choose from the list so these are all the books that are on the list um, and if you click on one of the covers it'll take you to um, an author talk or a book trailer or it might be a movie trailer instead um, or you know, a little extract or whatever I could find um, to kind of entice them to read the book, I guess. So in lieu of me being able to to stand up with the actual physical book and tell them about sort of each and every one, um, this is a way for them to kind of explore all those books um, on their own, I guess. Um, yeah, which was really fun. It's fantastic. It looks just great. And But I think what you could also do is you could use this as the basis of the actual book talk, couldn't you? You could. Mm, absolutely. So if the book talk was thematic and you were going to talk today, you know, about this particular group of books, um, this is the material you could be using on the big screen um, as a as a scaffold for the actual book talk itself. And yeah. I think what that enables you to do is to spend less time talking and let the kids actually just look and experience it themselves. Yeah, that's right. And the movie trailers in particular always work a treat because obviously they're so, um, you know, wonderful to look at. And it doesn't even matter that they're often slightly different from the actual book. It's enough to give them an idea of the um, of the story and what they can expect yeah. in the book, I think. So everyone's saying how brilliant it is and how awesome it is, Erin, in the chat, and they want to know what program you use to create it. Uh, so this is Google Slides. Um, that I did it on, and if you, um, I'll see if I can find the original, um, where I got the original idea. It was um, so it was just someone on someone I follow on um, Instagram um, did it, and actually did a really helpful video on how she created hers. And I pretty much just ripped it off. <laughs> Although she did it quite differently, she was doing a primary school, and she had different like an audio book room and like a STEM room and all that kind of stuff. So that's where the idea came from. But I'll try and find it now, and I'll pop it in the um, chat so you can can see yeah. it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Erin, um, could you put it on the Padlet as well? Um, yeah, great. sure. Then, yeah. Because um, then we'll take those resources away. And yeah, no After Erin um, was showing me this, I was thinking that we all do this in various ways. I mean, we at, at my last school, we would do a lot of this in LibGuides and, uh, and create LibGuides pages about each genre and have, you know, the, the YouTube videos embedded, the illustrations and mm -hmm. covers of the books, etc. So you can do this in lots of different platforms. It doesn't have to be. Um, I mean, I think Erin's is particularly swish, but you could. But you could. <laughs> it do did it take in, a lot of time. Yeah, someone <laughs> probably a bit too asked, much time to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> someone asked how long it took you. I wasn't going to make you tell but us. But there were like there are like twenty pages or something in there, so you certainly wouldn't have to do it. You know, quite that in depth. But it's the kind of thing that once you've done it. Yeah. It's there and you can yeah. just change it and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, yeah. Certainly I think what we found with creating the LibGuide pages was that once we'd done them for each of the genres they were there, we just added to them at the beginning of every year and mm. uh, and then everybody in the team could use them too. They were there mm. for us to share. 
And uh, in thinking about that, I wanted to suggest that if you look, a lot of people are very generous. They um, provide this material online. If, so if you do a search on people's websites, um, if you search, if, if people are using LibGuides and you search for the school name and LibGuides, their pages will come up. Um, and so it's worth doing a nice little look around to see what other people are doing and what you can, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm. Um, do we have any other hints we'd like to share before we've got, oh, we've only got like a minute left. Any from either of you, anything else you want to say about the actual book talk itself and how you might support it or scaffold it or structure it? I think the one thing I do is um, I always try to be honest and I think that makes a difference. So even if I don't like something, I will say so, but that doesn't mean that there won't be other readers who it appeals to. Um, and sometimes it works in, you know, the best possible way. If you say you hate it, that might make them want to read it, <laughs> you know, for various reasons. But I always talk about how reading the book makes me feel. And that's often what gets them excited about reading it. Yeah, I think Erin's yeah, absolutely right. Honesty and and talking about how the book made you feel and why it made you feel that way has always worked really well for me. Thank you both. They're all great ideas and, and I think you've been, uh, and what I really want to do, in, do with this is encourage people to reflect on what they do and why they do it and you're really both very good examples of that. You've really thought about what you're doing and why you're doing it and when we do that, it, I think it helps us to improve what we do um, if we're more reflective. And what you're both talking about in terms of being honest is about building relationships. Mm -hmm. um, so if those students, and it's, and it's a wonderful thing if you can actually work with students through many years and watch them grow mm -hmm. and build that relationship and the more you talk to them and are honest with them, the more likely they are to listen to you later on. And I know this from experience, it gets to the point where you don't have to say anything. <laughs> you just have to basically give them the book and they know mm -hmm. that they can trust you. They know that um, uh, if there's a reason why you want them to read it, they're going to like it and that's what we're trying to build. Um, we're trying to make ourselves indispensable, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's no possible way they can't they can do without us. Uh, and I think, yeah, and I think because sometimes I think we um, or other people think we're just talking about books, but mm. it's um, so much more than that. Mm. It, it, it is such an important skill. And what I really want to encourage people to do today is think about it, listen to Erin and Ty, and uh, and really reflect upon what you're doing. So thank you both. We'll come back to you again later. We're now going to hear from one of our another one of our creators and we'll come back to Ty and Erin uh, in a second session after that. So we now welcome to the screen Trace Bella. Um, this afternoon, Trace is going to share her work with us. Trace's background is in illustration, community arts, art therapy, animation and writing songs and stories. And she enjoys visiting schools and festivals uh, to talk about her, wor her work. Her books have uh, rightly been highly acclaimed. She's won the CBCA Book of the Year Award, the Readings Children's Prize, Book of Book Prize, beg your pardon, the Wilderness Society's Environment Award for Children's Literature, as well as being shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, uh, the Speech Pathology Book of the Year Awards, and the Adelaide Festival Awards for Children's Literature. I would like to welcome Trace and say how thrilled I am uh, to have her here after seeing her on Gardening Australia. Now, I don't know if anybody else watched this, but I am a fan. <laughs> 
and I thought you were wonderful, Trace. So thank you and welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Sue. Yeah, I got them up early in the morning. They had to drive from all the way from Melbourne in the dark. <laughs> Did that? You were great. I really loved it. So thank you. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Um, that was really interesting. <laughs> And I'll start by saying that uh, I got two books out this year and uh, one of my books, it wasn't this book, but one of my other books was, um, this one was stolen. <laughs> like you're saying, like the library book stolen. Well, this book was stolen by um, an Aboriginal elder who's a, a mentor of mine and that's how we met because he was so excited about my books. So I thought, oh, I've got to mention that. And so he ended up, um, his quote was on the on this book of mine, Rock Hopping. I'm not sure if, if you um, people here are familiar with my work, but um, they're nature stories. Uh, they're pretty much about um, connection to country. It's rock hopping. Um, and that one, River Time Mano, was the first of them. And they're really my stories and they're sort of disguised as children's stories. Um, so the ones that came out this year was Landing with Wings. And the book launch was due like the day of lockdown, <laughs> number one lockdown in March. So, um, so I uh, then tried to get some funding for my next book that I'm working on and I wasn't getting anywhere because everyone's going for funding. So I wrote a quick graphic novel, uh, The Heart of the Bubble, uh, to try and, like, I self-published it to try and, like, pay for me to work on my other book. Um, and this is in black and white. Um, and it's actually about um, being, the, the beautiful things that are coming out of this terrible pandemic that we're in. So, um, and I've been getting great feedback about that. So I'm going to show you a little bit about how I work and a little bit about those two books. Um, and also just um, I will mention that I, I really love, this is a great thing about um, the lockdown and stuff is I'm really liking visiting via Zoom to schools because I can stay in my studio, the kids get to see my studio and um, it doesn't take so much away from my working life. So it's um, that part of my working life. So it's actually like one of those many benefits. So I'm going to share my um, screen. Yes. Uh, okay. And is that up? Uh, yes, Trace, it is. Okay. Great. So that's me when I, I'm just going to see how I can move that so I can shuffle it. That's me when I was a girl. Um, so my books are um, really for upper primary, but they're really for anyone. That's me now. I still love trees. And so a lot of my work is about nature connection, but it goes deeper and is also about um, connection um, with community and uh, First Nations people. Uh, so this is from Landing with Wings and this girl, um, she came to live in the country and um, we don't know where from. 
So my books start looking like that. And that's actually from how I've been getting by in Corona time without the hugs of real people is <laughs> I hug a lot of trees. And so um, I've just got to move so I can, I'm not sure how to move. Oh yeah, okay. Excuse my technology. Um, yeah, so that's how I have got by. And so th these things just seep into my books. And that's, this is just rough for the next book. Oh, well, I mean, no, this is for the pitch for the next book, which is what I'm working on now, which is a sequel. Um, so I'm very much a sketch artist out in the bush. And I love water as well. And so those pictures end up in my books. Like this is in um, River Time. So I love that thing of like half underwater, half over. And what I love doing with kids, if I come from, workshops and stuff is a thing where like you can see the narrator there you can see tables and um i call it mixing up words and pictures and so um it's a really nice way to get kids who are not really into literacy to get involved in making their own cartoon stories and graphic novels um and it is a really tricky thing to do make a graphic novel um so, uh, yeah, this is from while I was making the book Landing with Wings. It's one of the pages in there. And I used the picture with the leaves to get the colour. I've done this book on my iPad and it was a bit of an ask for me to go computer because I'd been hand drawing. Um, but I did that because then they can translate the books. It's much easier because the words are all over the pictures. Uh, yeah, that's more of my nature drawings. So there's river time. And so it's really my story, but I make them stories about kids because people don't want to, kids don't really read story of a middle-aged couple going down canoeing. So, so there's my son and then there's the boy in the book. So that's what they look like uh, early on, my books. It took me about a year to get that far. And behind the scenes I'm doing a lot of, bits and pieces research. I work with um, many Aboriginal people from all over the place and ecologists and uh, park rangers uh, to get what I need for my story. So the next book was Rock Hopping. It was about trying to find the source of the river in the first book. And we went up and actually tried to find it and in the middle of trying to find it had it in Incredible adventure, which ended up um, being uh, <laughs> I could get my notebook out and write a book about what happened on that story. I love showing this one to kids because that's what my editor does to my work. And I love them knowing that this book won Kids Book of the Year for that level and uh, that category or whatever it was. And um, just so they know that the editor is actually helping make it better. So for me, it's just the gold, this messy page. Uh, so here's Landing with Wings, which just came out this year. <laughs> That's my ecologist going, wow, how did you do all that? And his son. This is the type of research I love. Going down to the creek and looking at the frogs and so on. Uh, and I, I was very lucky to be able to use some um, local language, Jajarung language. It took a long time and a lot of permissions 
to be able to do so. Um, but that's a really good thing to just do it the right way. And uh, so that's just sketching at the market, one of the pictures in the book. And that's how different it looks. So there are, I've got the red colour, but I wanted to change it. And you can see in this one, I've even put um, some books that I love in there, including the Dark Emu. And that's one of the pages in the story of her meeting one of her neighbours. And uh, so I, I really liked, you know, going to hang out with goats and people with house trucks to do so. I, I use a lot of um, the ecology is from real life, even though the story's made up. So there's a lot of research behind it all to get to that point. And I've even managed to get in a traditional smoking ceremony. And the elder um, from our area, he's so, so thrilled to be in this book. We spent a lot of time, um, you know, working on it. We just sit in the park and have meetings. And, and then one day, after about three or four years, finally handed him the book and he was very happy. And uh, just near the end of the book, I was asking an ecologist for some info and he told me about this plant that only grows in one place in the whole world was on the mountain where the story set and it just worked perfectly for the end of the story. So this is the page before that. I was just thrilled. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can use that so well. And at the back of my book, I've got sort of how I've made the story, uh, things like using... Um, the life cycle of the frog and um, all the tools that I use and there's Uncle Rick um, and how the gold rush for me, I found another way to call it the gold fields which was because of all the beautiful gold things because for me the gold rush is quite destructive and um, there's also bits about immigration and there's my own family history in there as well, my father coming as a refugee to Australia. Uh, yes, so and then this is the heart of the bubble. Um, so uh, as I said, it's about this, well, it's about a family in the city and how they coped with uh, the coronavirus. I wrote it so early in the pandemic that there weren't, there wasn't a lot of mask wearing going on. So if I ever did a second edition, I would put some more masks in. But it's about the family coming together, getting to know some neighbours. Um, and the thing I found really lovely about it, the feedback I've got from schools and just individuals is like how kids are really relating to um, it's going to be able to talk about this book, about their own experience. And at the back of the book and online, I've got um, lots of teacher notes and questions for kids um, to do their own thing. Oh, <laughs> something completely different. <laughs> That's, uh, um, I've gone back to talk about making my book. So for me, like making, eating mandarins, it's for me, it's the best fruit in the world for sharing. So that's, this is the book I'm working on now. It's the sequel to the last one and we're talking about mandarins, people durins. 
And um, I'm also at the moment researching with um, a baby emu. And there it is. It's so lovely to be able to do that. So I'll stop the screen share. Uh, and then if I don't know if I've got any more time. Stop. Oh, sorry. Stop sharing screen. I don't know if I've got any more time. That's probably the time. Oh, you've done very well, actually, Trace. I think we're right on time. I mean, yeah. you might have a minute left. I, you must make the time to read the chat. Everyone's been so positive about all of your work and they've been saying thank you for your wonderful books and how philosophical and subtle. Oh, so, so many things they're saying here. So please do go and read the chat. And Thank you were you. fantastic. Thank you. That was just wonderful. I, I love looking at all your drawings. Yeah, and I'll just say there's lots of fire my website. There's lots of um, little films and um, to do different activities um, and nature drawing and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, someone, uh, I'll beg your pardon. Someone's just asked a question. Which First Nations countries are your books set in? Well, um, uh, River Time, oh, sorry, River Time is um, Gunditch, Mara and Bowendick. Uh, copying is Japwarang, Jabwajali, Gunditch, Mara, um, Nations. I'd have to look it up. My brain is a bit excited from being here. And this one's um, Jajarang, where I live in Jajarang, Jara country. Uh, yeah, so um, all over, and it's it's an amazing privilege to be working with First Nations people and books and crossing that bridge together. Yeah, thank you. We're very very lucky to have you. I think very very lucky. And uh, someone, oh, oh, Ty has wonderfully put your uh, website in the chat, and I know it's on the Padlet as well. Um, and everyone else is saying amazing. So thank you very much, Trace. We'll move on. We re you really deserve much longer. I do apologise. <laughs> we'll keep going. Thank you. Okay, back to our panel. We just have uh, uh, so many riches this afternoon. It's so exciting to have so many wonderful creators with us. So our next section uh, in relation to our discussion about book talking, uh, I wanted to return to, or well, turn to a different part of the whole idea of book talking and get have Aaron and Ty back with me. So Chambers in his book, Tell Me, and I have the book somewhere here. I was going to wave it around. Um, Chambers in his book, Tell Me, Children Reading and Talking, discusses how talk allows us to think out aloud about what we have read and how it helps us sort out our feelings and reactions. Everyone knows that after you have read something really great or something that puzzles you, the first thing you want to do is share that with someone else. So talking helps us puzzle things through. Talking about books also lets others hear about books they might like to read. But the thing I would like to address in this uh, section of this session is how do we get students to talk about their reading. So in the beginning, in our first piece, we were talking about hints about what we might do to help us to talk better about books. Now what I want Erin and, uh, and Ty and, and for us to come together with is some ideas about how we actually might get the students to talk. Because we all know that 
in, in many cases, the kids would actually rather hear from each other than they would from us. So over to Ty and Erin. I'm not sure where we're going to start, but uh, what would we do? What do you think we need to do to help get students to share? Um, I'll start if you like. <laughs> um, I, I set up an expectation in my library classes that every time I see them, I ask the boys to share what they've been reading. Um, and generally, you know, not everyone will share every time. Um, which is fine. And I do sometimes, sometimes remember <laughs> what they've been the last couple of weeks. And I will ask them specifically if I remember that that's hard to do when you've got lots and lots of classes. Um, but they're pretty open to it and they start to get in the swing of it and they, you know, start um, at the beginning of the class. That's, that's what we do because I always share what I've read since last time I saw them. Um, and so I ask them to do the same. And if all they've read is the class text, then I ask them about that. Yeah, sure. Oh, sorry. We seem to be, I don't know whether the rest of you are experiencing some lagging, but it might just be me. No, me too. Mine's a bit jumpy. Okay, um, maybe we'll pass over to Ty and see if she has something to share and maybe it might write itself. Ty, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, um, I think Erin's absolutely right. Getting them into that habit of talking about what they're reading is possibly the biggest gift any of us can give them. I, The students at my school, I found um, sort of split into two groups. I had students who were super keen and super excited to literally run into the library and talk to me about what they were reading. But then I found that a lot of my students didn't really know how to summarise a book or, you know, summarise what they were reading clearly or well. Um, and one of the things that I found really useful for that was asking them to turn the book into a six-word story. So I would spend time explaining to them what a six-word story was and giving them examples of that and then ask them to basically turn the book itself into a six-word story. And for the students who found six words too difficult, we um, we would offer them the opportunity for them to turn it into a tweet. So I don't know how many of you are aware, but there is a really great um, popular penguin, which is, you know, great classic pieces of literature that have literally been turned into tweets. And some of those are really great for sharing with your students. I suggest that you, um, if you don't have a copy, definitely grab one. So getting the students to turn the synopsis of a book into, you know, 140 characters, that's what it was at the time. Um, and that was hugely successful with my kids. They really enjoyed both of those exercises and it helped them learn how to talk about what was the most engaging part of what they were reading. Uh Claire has asked in the chat, can I have that title again, please? I think, do you mean? I will, I will yeah, send a link. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ty. Um, yeah, I think that's really important what both of you have said. And I think what we need to do is um, scaffold or support our students as much as we can to help them understand how to talk well about books. And obviously, if we're doing good book talks, they have a model to watch and understand because we're sharing in a certain way. Um, and I think that's really valuable. What I also found um, was that 
a lot of students are, are quite shy about sharing. And if you can create an activity that allows them, that allows the focus to not be on them while they are sharing, that is helpful. And um, one that um, I wanted to share with you is that I did use a, a Padlet, which we're using today in this session to add our comments to. I would have Padlet on the screen um, behind me on a very large screen. And I would have my students uh, post the books that they had been reading up onto the Padlet as covers or little comments. And then those that wanted to would be invited to to share about what they'd posted. But because everyone was looking at the screen and not looking at them, they they felt a little bit more comfortable about talking about their, their book uh, when everyone wasn't looking at them. And, and I think that is actually... Um, uh, a really great way of thinking about it. And there are lots of different ways you can do that. But just taking the focus off, uh, off the student themselves. Erin, back to you, anything? Oh, we lost Erin. I'm not sure whether, I think Erin might be freezing slightly. So we might, um, I might I might keep talking for the moment, unless Ty, would you Sorry, like um, to share something can else? You... And then we might see how we do it. Oh, there she Can is. you hear me now, Susan? <laughs> it seems I'm here, I'm back again. Yeah, it Sorry. seems to just be freezing. Yeah. Oh, okay. I might have to I might have to maybe I'll move um, in the library and see if I um if that helps. Um can you still hear me now? No? Yes, okay. we can hear you now. I think it was just freezing, yeah. Can you hear me? Um I might I might go Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna online. walk and move. <laughs> we can Sorry, keep going, I'm walking Aaron, and I'm talking. Keep going. Okay, I'm I'm going upstairs, so hopefully that will fix the problem. You can have a We might keep going without you if that's all right. Um, Is that helping? Is that sounding better? <laughs> Uh, there we go. Maybe, maybe not. Cutting out. Yeah. Perhaps just stop, Erin, and we'll just keep going. And if we can get back to you, we will. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Ty, yep. can I go back to you? And yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, another thing that I found that worked really, really well with particularly my um, seven to nine students, something that was very effective with them was asking them to create short playlists that summarised the feeling of a book, um, which sounds, you know, it sounds like a strange thing to do, but we had a library Spotify where students could access that and create playlists that everyone could see. And they would have to title the playlist after the book that they'd read. Beautiful Creatures was very popular for this exercise. Um, so was Twilight, interestingly enough, all that moody dramatic music um, and they would then have to talk to each other about the playlist they've made so I still remember two students in particular Paige and Jolie um, had both made playlists for the same book and when they listened to one another's playlist they got into quite the heated debate over who had made the most accurate playlist because they were both so different so that was really great in terms of you know getting them to reflect that not everybody has the same reading experience of the same book. Mm. So that opened, you know, that discussion of, oh, wow, this was how I read that and somebody else has not necessarily read it the same way. 
So that that exercise was really successful with that age group. I didn't try it with anyone younger, but seven to nine, it was perfect. That's that's fantastic, and I and I, it meets that criteria of what I was talking about before. It gives them something else to focus on rather than themselves, and I think that gives them that extra little bit of confidence. If we put them on the spot and just expect them to talk uh, without any structure around that talk or any support for that talk, it's very, very difficult. Anyone finds that hard. You find yourself just saying, oh, yeah, the book was good. You know, you don't really know what to say. So we need some help, and I think kids are the same. Um, Yeah. How are we going with you, Erin? Are you back with us? I think it seems better to me. Is it better for you? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, thank you, thank you. Um, Michelle said that she used Flipgrid with her um, kids and I used that quite a bit during remote learning as well, which I thought was fantastic. So I gave them like two minutes to create little videos, little video reviews. Um, and I also used it to kind of reflect on some stuff we'd done in class. So I did an online book tasting as well and I got them to sort of reflect on that um, using Flipgrid. Flipgrid was great and they seemed to really enjoy it. Some took it to it more than others, but it's a good way, again, to feel like they're not necessarily the focus of all the eyes in the class, I guess, yeah. at one time, which is good. Um, but something else I used to do, um, which I haven't done this year, but I, I, is always a good one, is I asked them to bring in their favourite favorite book or a book that they've read recently that they really loved. Um, and I asked them to, everyone has to bring in the book and we literally go around the circle and they have to recommend it to other people and tell the other people in the class why they should read it, I guess. Um, um, you're a bit of a dragon, Erin. You're a bit of a dragon. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, a... <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think what you're doing is fantastic. But, and, but I, yeah, it's wonderful. Really good. Um, I don't know if, everyone, if everyone's reading the chat. Um, Trace, our wonderful creator, has actually suggested that, uh, getting them to do map space. Mm. And that's okay. a lovely idea. And then if you got them to actually talk about their map, um, again, that would support them in their discussion and, and in what they could say. So this is all really good. Um, mm. Building on what you were suggesting of asking them to bring in their favourite, um, I would also ask them to um, either bring in or at least bring in the title of uh, a favourite book of their parents or their grandparents. Um, which is a really interesting activity to do. I used to do this with quite young, well, younger students around year five. And the idea was book talk of a, a variety of ways. It's asking them to talk about books with someone in their family and then come back and share that with us. And we would talk about how things have changed and how um, tastes have changed as well. And then we would also be fascinated to find books that they were reading that were popular with other generations. So it can have many and various uh, uses, but it's a lovely thing for them to go home and talk to someone in their family um, about what they've been reading and then bring that back to the class. Um, Now, how are we going for time? We're almost out of time. So if Erin and Ty don't mind, I'm going to mention one more idea before we move on. I have written this up in the Padlet. Um, but it's something that worked for me really well. Uh, and it was asking the class to split into pairs. They then tell each other about a book they've read. It worked very well when we would just come back from uh, term break. So they share their book with their pair. And then they we come back together as a class. We go around the room. Everyone has to speak. And I would give it very clear structure. They only have to say a very small amount. It might be why the book was good or why they liked the book or something. Very, very brief. Um, And they 
are going, when they come back to share with the class, they tell the class about their pair's book, not their own book, but the book that the other person that they spoke to read. And I found this really valuable because it meant that they weren't focusing on themselves. They had to really listen very carefully to what uh, their peer was telling them, and then they had to share that with the class and remember it. So that was something that I would do quite regularly. And once we did it often, they got really good at it, and, and it was a great activity. Uh, yes, oh, sorry, someone's asked in the chat, well, a book that they liked at the same age. Yes, sorry, I didn't explain that very well. So they're asking their parent to think about a book that they liked when they were young. If it was hard, we would actually broaden it out to a favourite picture book just to make it a little bit easier. But if I was working with older students, we'd try and get them to talk about books. And it's amazing how many things come up that they know uh, if you're working with older kids, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, Capture in the Rye, all of those come up. And the kids are really amazed that their parents read these books too. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm sorry, I've gone on there. Ty or Erin, would either of you like to say one last thing before we move on? No. No? All good? Okay. Yep. Excellent. Oh, you're wonderful. Um, so we will move on to our next creator. We really are zapping through it this afternoon. I really appreciate you all hanging in there. Hope you're enjoying it and hope you're getting some great ideas that you can take back to your own school. Uh, I think Erin and Ty have got so many great things to share with us. It's really important. So our final creator for the afternoon is Susie Zale. Susie has worked as a litigation lawyer, specialising in family law, but now writes full time. Among other titles, she's written her father's story, The Tattooed Flower, His Life as a Survivor of the Holocaust. Her first novel for young adults, The Wrong Boy, was shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year Awards and various other awards. Susie's books have been published in Germany, the UK, US, Sweden, Italy, Romania and the Netherlands. And this afternoon, she's going to talk to us about her new book, I Am Change. Welcome, Susie. I hope you're there somewhere. Yes. Can you see me? <laughs> yes. Yes. You can hear me. You can see me. All good. Wonderful. Over to you. Thank you. Welcome. Oh, I'll just yell out if I drop out. Um, I'm just completely in awe of you guys because I think your job as teacher librarians is so much harder than our job because you have to be on top of everything that comes out and talk about it in this incredibly engaging way. And all I want to do is talk about my backlist. So, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it's easy compared to you guys. And I think, you know, how to give a book talk is something that I'm always thinking about because I, it's not really natural. You know, most of us writers, we choose to write because we enjoy sitting in a room by ourselves for long periods of time, not having to speak to anyone. Um, and then there's, of course, you know, when you go to writers' festivals and book weeks, there's always those writers who, you know, they come in costume and they've got props and they're absolutely hilarious. They're usually ex-teachers and they've dabbled in acting and you watch them and they don't even mention their books half the time. And, you know, at the end of the talk, they've got a line of kids waiting to buy their books. They're just, um, you know, natural at it. But I worked out pretty quickly that that just wasn't me. Um, I, I kind of write sad stories on difficult themes for secondary students and, you know, books that make them cry and think and question, hopefully. Um, and so I can't offer them a show. Um, all I can do, I guess, is sort of offer them me. So that's what I do. I tell them who I am and, you know, what drives me to write and what the writing life is like. And I tell them, I guess, stories of the real people who inspire my novels and in the case of I Am Change, my most recent novel, the real girls struggling in Uganda to stay in school and, you know, the heartbreaking stories they told me 
Um, so it's usually about people, my book's about people whose lives are wildly different to the students I talk to. Um, and, you know, they're not, they're not laughing. I don't make them laugh, but they're listening and they're invested. And I think that to me is, for me, a successful book talk when you can make kids just care about something maybe they've never even thought about. And, you know, when they stay back to ask questions and ask what they can do to help. And I think the, what, what they respond to is the fact that I care, I guess, and, you know, what I'm talking about upsets me and galvanises me and I think that's sort of catchy. So I think, you know, if we're excited or horrified or fascinated by whatever books we're talking about and we really explore the themes and help them sort of climb into the skin of the main characters, then they're going to hopefully um, want to take what they've heard and pick up that book and read it. So I usually, when I, when I do school talks, which I do a lot of them, I love them, um, I usually start with how I became a writer and the first story that I ever wrote, which was my father's story. Um, my dad was from a small town in Czechoslovakia and growing up I really didn't know anything about his childhood. Um, we never talked about Auschwitz. He didn't talk about the hunger or the hangings or the fact that he'd lost, you know, his parents. He'd survived the camps as a 13-year-old and he'd come to Australia at 17 and the first thing he did was cover up his tattoo, you know, his number tattoo, because he said when he saw a smiling Australian faces, he decided that he wasn't a number and he wasn't a victim. And so I guess, you know, he buried the past as a way to move forward and build a happy life for himself in Australia, which he really did. Um, he was this sunny, positive, sort of confident man. And, you know, I guess even if I had sensed any wounds, I wasn't about to go digging and, you know, and inviting that darkness in. I said, you know, what kid wants to see their father, their strong, smiling father cry? So we just didn't talk about it. Um, that all changed in 1998. My dad was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and given six months to live and he didn't want to spend uh, the last six months we had together crying. He wanted to talk and the first thing he wanted to tell us was his Holocaust story. So he flew my mum and me and my two brothers and I think we had a few babies between us at that stage to Fiji and we spent nine nights over 25 hours listening to his story and he told us everything. He told us about, you know, being beaten up at school and having to wear the yellow armband to signify he was a Jew and he told us about the cattle train trip to Auschwitz and his first experience seeing death. In the end, the six months the doctors gave him ended up turning into five years, which was a beautiful time for us. I'd quit my job as a lawyer when he was diagnosed. Um, you know, life suddenly felt too short to be doing something that I wasn't passionate about. I had no clue what I wanted to do, but I just knew that I wanted to get to know my dad. And so we spent the five years together and I just asked him questions, you know, questions that were uncomfortable and that I would never have asked um, if he weren't dying, questions like, you know, what do you dream about at night? What frightens you? When did you first make love? I guess I knew because he wouldn't be around for much longer. I don't know. It just sort of gave me that the guts to um, ask those questions and, you know, and he would answer them. There's nothing he wouldn't answer. Even down the track when he got a tracheostomy um, and he couldn't talk, he had a little light writer like Stephen Hawking's had and he would just type away and answer all my questions. Um, I knew that I had to write it all down. Um, not just his Holocaust story, but just watching him die so graciously and bravely and seeing him turn that those last years into an opportunity to grow as a person and, and deepen his relationships. Um, and then the night before he died, and I don't know, I guess, we were all around his bed. Mum had cared for him the whole time at home and I leant over to him and I said, you know, Dad, I promise you I'm going to get your story published. Everyone will know um, about what you went through and they'll learn to die without fear or regret. 
And, um, of course, when I made that promise, I had to keep it. So I enrolled in RMIT's brilliant professional writing and editing course. And a year later, my first book, The Tattooed Flower, was published, which was the story of my, my dad's life and death. Um, I never returned to the law. I found that apart from absolutely loving to get to know my dad, I really loved listening to people's stories and then having to sort of reconstruct those stories on paper. So I just kept going. And the only rule I gave myself was I just had to follow my own curiosity. So the first um, book that I wrote after that was a book about motherhood, true stories, a collection of stories about motherhood. I was a new mum and I was just curious about how other people mothered. And to find the stories, I just started asking questions, things that fascinated me like, you know, what would it be like to be a mother and not be able to see your child? And that led me to interview a vision impaired mother who you know, got to know what her child looked like by feeling for the contours of his face. And every time he came home from kinder, she would feel for the ridges of paint on, on the artwork so she could see what he'd brought home. And then what would it be like being a mum and not being able to see your kid whenever you wanted? And that led me to a women's prison where I interviewed a woman who had to leave her four- and six-year-old daughters um, at home and when she was sentenced for pulling behind bars for fraud. My next book was inspired by something my dad had said to me in his final days. He said, Susie, at the end of the day, it's all about who you love and who loves you back. So I wrote a book about love. Um, I wrote about a couple who stayed together after the husband had surgery to become a woman. And I wrote a book about a woman who had to fall in love with her husband all over again when he had a brain injury, which completely changed his personality. Um, and I, I just interviewed lots of fascinating people, a couple who slept in ice caves and skydived together. And I thought about, you know, I'd interviewed such interesting people, but I wasn't really taking any risks. So I, I sort of thought, you know, it's time for me to get uncomfortable, time maybe to stop interviewing people but start imagining them into existence. So I thought it's time to, you know, try my hand at fiction. Now, my first novel, The Wrong Boy, um, about a 15-year-old Jewish girl who's chosen to play piano for the SS commander, um, set in Auschwitz, really drew quite heavily on my father's experiences. A lot of his stories that he told me went into that novel. Um, and maybe I wasn't ready to let him go. Maybe that was a way of me keeping him close. But I also sort of thought that the only way I knew how to maybe stop the, something like the Holocaust from happening again was by trying to understand it. And the best way I knew how to let kids understand it was by giving them a character to care about not millions of jews just one you know a girl their age with the same fears and, and dreams someone they could sort of suffer with and also triumph with um, after that i wrote another book alexander altman which was about a 14 year old boy who was drafted into auschwitz's elite horse commando and again set in world war ii and that was inspired by the true story of an elderly survivor i just happened to meet as I was wrapping up the wrong boy. And, you know, I worried from time to time that my stories might be too sad and too frightening, but I sort of thought, you know, especially now in a world which is just so much division and so much hate that I think it was really important to have stories for kids to help them understand each other better. And I thought, you know, good writing, it's okay if it provokes. Learning is meant to challenge, and, and not just the readers, but I guess us authors too. So, you know, I've written three Holocaust books and I thought, look, it's time for me to keep you know, challenging myself and exploring something new. So it was around the time Malala Yousafzai was um, shot in the head for daring to go to school on her school bus. Around the same time, 200 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped by Boko Haram, 
who are a terrorist organisation opposed to girls' education. And that just really haunted me. And I started thinking, you know, what can I do to help not just 200 girls, but the millions of girls who, as I started reading more and more about girls' rights, I realised, woke up every day and didn't go to school. Um, and I knew, obviously, as a writer, my best weapons were words. I had to write a book. So I pitched an idea to my publishers, Walker Books, um, to write a story about a, a girl set in modern-day Africa who struggles to get an education. Um, and I just really wanted to illuminate what it meant to be a girl in a place where girls were invisible and make it something which was empowering, so a story about a girl who found her voice and, you know, fought for change. So uh, some hope in that story. And they gave me a contract. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was trying to work out how to tell an authentic story as a middle-class white um, woman living in Australia and should I even be trying. And, that, that you know, that was a very heavy concern throughout the book but I sort of knew I had to try because I sort of felt if I just kept telling the same story, my story over and over, I'd never learn anything and I'd never change anything. So I was struggling with this idea and then totally by chance I was going for a work, walk with a girlfriend telling her I wanted to write about girls' rights and she said, you wouldn't believe it. Um, one of my friends is hosting a Ugandan girl. She'll be here for another four days. You know, I can perhaps ask if she'd be happy to speak to you. So I drove out uh, to visit this girl and I remember her name was Lillian the same name as my main character of my book, and she answered the door. She was 29 and she was cradling this doll and, you know, those huge dolls, China dolls with the sort of the creepy eyes. She was holding this doll for the whole of our four-hour interview and she told me one story that, you know, when she was young she was too poor to afford dolls, so she used to dig the garden and pack these dolls out of mud and every night she'd take them home to bed and wake up in the morning and her bed would be covered in dirt. And then one of her friends taught her how to make dolls out of banana fibre so it wouldn't fall apart. But, of course, they smelt terribly after a few days and her mother would make her bury these dolls in the dirt. And she, she was telling me how she had this massive graveyard of babies and she'd be constantly like, burying these babies. And that's one of many stories um, that made their way into the book. But, you know, I knew that Lillian's story was just one story in one voice and, and I needed to learn more, so I booked a flight to Uganda. I'd grown up very privileged. I was surrounded by books encouraged to learn and I had no clue what it felt like to be, you know, a young Ugandan girl without shoes or school books and I needed to speak to the girls who did. So um, I emailed aid organisations and when I got there, um, 30 girls were generously um, waiting for me to share their stories and I went to their villages and visited their huts and walked to the wells where they gathered water and sat in their classrooms with them. Um, I started every day at 8am with a line of girls waiting to speak to me. You know, they're taking time off work or at school to sit sometimes for hours till it was their turn to speak. And it wasn't for the gifts I brought, but I think it was for just the hope that I'd carry their stories home with me. They just wanted to be heard. These girls were so used to being ignored. Um, and they wanted me to put their experience on the page because growing up, most of them had never owned a book, but the one or two that had told me there were books like Cinderella, you know, books about white girls who married princes. And they wanted to read about a, a girl who washed other people's clothes so she could afford to go to school and a girl who was scared to become a woman because everything changes when you live in a small village once you bleed. Uh, and they wanted other people to read it too. Many of them told me, you know, we want people in faraway places who've never heard of Uganda to read this book and then maybe they'll be moved to help because these a lot of the girls I spoke to were privileged and they had scholarships. They wanted other people, other girls who they knew, to also have the opportunity to go to school and change their lives. Um, I only had an hour with each girl, so I, I had to get straight to the darkest parts of their stories and ask questions 
you wouldn't normally ever ask a stranger. Things like, you know, when you get your period, what do you use to soak up the blood? And how does it feel when your husband takes a second wife? And how often does he beat you? And, you know, I, I mind the most private moments and they share their heartbreak with such warmth and generosity. And, you know, they tell me, well, we use leaves when we bleed, but it hurts. So mostly we just take a week off school every month. Or they'd say, you know, when my husband beats me and they just sort of shrug their shoulders and say they all do and he only does it if he has a good reason, like if I burn the dinner or if I come home late. You know, and most days I just return home to my hotel just too sad and angry and to sleep. But, you know, alongside that also sat this incredible awe. These girls were absolutely brilliant and fierce and you know they live without electricity or running water they warmed their food in the sun they didn't have fridges or cupboards um, none of the girls I interviewed had both their parents most of them were orphans they lived in concrete boxes in the city slums they walked an hour to school in an empty stomach they did the, the lucky one few six of them had reached high school the lucky few that were in high school um, did the homework by the light of the moon on their laps but they said they were blessed they said to me you know we're lucky to be learning if you can read and write you'll get a good job and you will never be hungry and I'd often, often ask them you know what makes you smile because there were so many sad stories and I didn't want to define them in terms of their suffering because these girls were so much more than their poverty and they'd say to me things like a light bulb or a second pair of underwear and their faces would just light up but mostly they said books and um you know I knew very well that this book that I planned to write wouldn't make up in any way um, for everything they'd lost but I guess as an author story was the only way I knew how to help um I knew I had to get the details right I think that the only way I could do this authentically was to do my homework and do a lot of it and work in collaboration with these girls and just just be their their spokesperson so when I got home I continued my research uh, I, I researched for about three years um, I was constantly in touch with tribal leaders teachers and aid workers over there as well as a number of the girls who could speak English and were still in school and it was you know it was really confronting learning about forced marriages female genital mutilation um, just all the everyday everyday struggles of these girls um, because for them it was normal to be hungry, it was normal to have a younger brother die of malaria, normal to walk to school and, and miss meals. Um, and the hard thing was here I was at home in an air-conditioned house and they, they were still there. They were still, you know, going through the what they had to go through every day just to stay in school. Um, and all I could do really was, to, I guess, I tried to just focus on their strength and their grit and what maybe what I could achieve if I could capture that, you know, in the pages of my novel. So... It took me three years to write I Am Change. I stitched all the research I'd done with all the interviews and the private, you know, the details these girls had told me. And um, then I got in touch with the, one of the girls I interviewed on my first day, Nambukasa Sarah. She was a student in Year 11, very smart girl. And I asked her if I could pay her as my editor, my expert sensitivity reader, um, because I wasn't going to give this book to Walker until I, she told me that this was her life and her experience. So she read every draft and we'd speak and she'd say things to me like, you know, yes, um, that girl who described, you know, um, on page 13 who was married at the age of 14, yes, she would have been married just like that. But let me tell you what she was wearing. Let me tell you about the vows. 
or she'd say, you know, the girl in Chapter 6 would have spread her legs for a few coins, but let me tell you what would have happened to her when she went home to her mother. And she sent me, you know, photos of pit toilets and cooking huts. She would correct the language if I didn't address, if Lily and my character didn't address her mother properly, she would tell me, no, you would not speak to your mother like that, and you would bow when you spoke to your father. So, you know, I remember at the end of she looked at the very last draft and uh, I remember the relief I felt when she said, you know, I was watching for mistakes, but in the end I got lost in the story because I was Lillian and everything that happened happened to me or one of my friends. And she said to me, things are going to change here. You watch. Me and my friends will make them change. We just need some help. And I guess just to wrap up, I think, you know, for me that's what the book is about and what I most like to talk about with children, and that's change, the change that these girls are fighting for and the change you know, that we can all be a part of and, and shake things up and empower those without a voice because I think there's a really important distinction that I tell the girls. It's not our job to speak for those who can't. It's our job to change the systems that are silencing them. So when these girls finish school, they can write their own books and they're the books we'll be reading. Um, and I tell, you know, I tell kids that, um, you know, my job is to put words on the page but they have just as much power. We've all got power, to, you know, to affect change. They've just got to pick something that makes them angry and start there. And I talk a little bit about the charities, charities I started, um, like Give a Girl a Book, which was I tell them it's free. I just went on to Instagram and said, you know, let's think during book week about all the girls who don't have books. Give me a secondhand book so I'll get them to Africa. Um, you know, and schools got on board for International Women's Day and for book weeks, and within a year we've sent 5,000 books to Africa. So... So I like to talk about a lot of those things with kids and sort of engage them in all in the facts behind the story. Um, so I think that's what sparks them, what sparks their interest is the true stories, and that's when the fun begins, when it becomes a bit of a conversation between us. Um, so yeah, whenever I can, I just try and go in and do a Q and A and just let them go and, and let them sort of ask what they're interested in, whether it's about. Um, the girls that I met, or sometimes it's just about, you know, the writing process and how much I earn. Whatever it is, I, I try and just give them as much as I can. And, yeah, if I do my job properly, they'll not just want to read the book but hopefully do something to help. I'd better shut up now. I think I'll talk. <laughs> Thank you, Susie. That was fantastic. <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. You're getting all kinds of positive comments in the chat, so please do take a moment to have a look at that. Um, we really appreciate you sharing that amazing journey with us. That was fantastic. Thank you. I'm sorry to have to move on so quickly, but um, we really do appreciate your time and your effort and everything you're doing. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump straight into the next bit. I would like to add in to that what I was thinking of when um, Susie was speaking about how once all of us hear these stories from these amazing authors like what we've been hearing this afternoon, uh, they can improve our book talks <laughs> by giving us extra information that we can share with our students when we go back into the classroom. So that's something I think that uh, we're certainly trying to do with these forums is bring creators to you so that you can uh, know more about them and you can share that with your with your students when you're talking about their books. And certainly I think this afternoon we've had three really great examples of that. There are so many wonderful things you could share with your students about the three creators you've been listening to this afternoon. So the third part that we wanted to talk about uh, with our panel, um, we wanted to actually look at specific books um, because we recognise that when we started talking about this amongst ourselves that 
some books make better book talks than others. Um, some just have something about them that really works or that makes a really good book talk. And sometimes you just find the perfect book that just works for you, that you can talk about really well um, and that you uh, find a really great way or a hook or a, a really wonderful thing to say that always works. So we wanted to uh, share amongst ourselves, Erin, Ty and I, uh, particular books that have worked for us and maybe also particular strategies that work with certain books. Uh, we'd also love it if you would like to speak. Uh, we haven't got long. Um, we've got an, oh, probably another you know, five or ten minutes. So if you actually want to talk, you can. I, I hope if you don't unmute yourself. Or if you'd like to pop them in the chat, uh, if you would like to um, share with us a particular book that you think works really well as a book uh, to be book talked about or something that's worked for you, a particular strategy that's worked with a particular book. So can I jump over to one of my panel? Who would like to go first this time? I can, if you like. <laughs> I, should, I should say, shouldn't I, rather than letting yeah, you choose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Otherwise, Erin and I will end up having an argument. <laughs> I don't think we've ever had an argument. So. <laughs> Um, uh, one that always works for me is Alison Evans' Highway Bodies. And all I need to say about Highway Bodies is zombie apocalypse set in Melbourne. And that's pretty much it. And that gets them every time. <laughs> Actually, zombie apocalypse usually works <laughs> anyway, but the fact that it's set in Melbourne, absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely helps, I think. <laughs> so just a few words. That's an Just easy a few one. words for that one. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's right. Um, it's also a really good one to read. Um, the first chapter is also a good, it's a good one for that as well, because it kind of throws you straight into the action. So, yeah. Okay. Well, on top of that, I might come back and just mention that I wanted to suggest not reading the first chapter, but I used to look for books where all I read to the students was the first page. So I would tell them, all I'm going to read you now is the first page. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm not going to tell you anything at all. I'm just going to read you the first page. And the and, and because it's a long time since I've been doing this all the time, the one that I remember that was the best uh, is an old book. It was um, Skellig by David Armand. And if any of you know the book, I'm sure you do because it's a, it won many awards and has been around forever. But it is old. But all I would read was the first page. But it just sets it up so wonderfully. David Armand does a fantastic job of really making you want to know what's going to happen. And they'd all be, what is he? What is he? Because you just don't know what this thing is. And I would say, I'm not telling you. <laughs> and they would, they would certainly want to go away and read that one afterwards. The books would walk off the shelves. So first chapter, first page. Ty, what about you? Particular books? Um, or I used to use a tactic similar to that with Neil Gaiman's M for Magic. I would read them The Price, which is a short story that never, if you've ever read that short story, you never forget it. And when you read them that story, um, they all rush to borrow it off the shelves. Another one I used to, very similar to Alison Evans um, and Aaron's recommendation, Charlie Higson's The Enemy. I used to mm. just say, zombie yeah. apocalypse, do not, whatever you do, eat while you are reading this. <laughs> yeah, so true. <laughs> every time. Yes. Um, and the, the other thing about that too, sorry, Ty, I was going to say is because the second book, is not necessarily directly 
comes directly after the first one because we never have the first one on the shelf i will often give them the second one to start yeah. with as well and it's it opens just as well um it yeah it sets it up beautifully with lots of gore and yeah and i also tell the story which i remember Kristen, you'll remember this when he used to talk about how he would read the as he wrote wrote it he would read it to his kids and if none of them came to him with nightmares then he knew that it wasn't scary enough and so he just kept ramping it up until one of them woke him in the middle of the night um, so yeah that that yes yeah, right so yeah that, always got them. that is horrible that is horrible, it's horrible but it works <laughs> And he's still in therapy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Speaking of therapy, I um I used to do an exercise using Grimm's fairy tales, but the originals, not the sanitized Disney versions. And this was something I did primarily with secondary students, but I tested it out on my own children first. <laughs> and Griffin still will occasionally bring up at a family dinner. Do you remember that night you read us Bluebeard and I didn't sleep for like a year? But, um, <laughs> I might have sort of underestimated how ready he was for that story. So don't use Bluebeard. Um, but I find Snow White, the original, works really well, particularly considering that, you know, at the end they make the queen dance in molten hot metal shoes at their wedding. Um, I used to have 35 copies of Grimm's Fairy Tales in my library and there was never one on the shelf after I did that book talk. And it gives you a great opportunity to then talk about people that have created books fed off those fairy tales too, doesn't it? You can segue into talking about all of these other things as yeah. well. Um, and it gives you those great connections to popular culture too, because they can mm -hmm. all realise what Disney has done to all of these mm -hmm. <laughs> fairy tales. And, and go. Make, yeah, it makes the kids very disgruntled about that. Um, any more that we'd like to share? Otherwise, we might move on. Are you two both exhausted? Have you got anything else you'd like to say before we hand over to the wonderful Kristen? But I, I'd like to give both of you the last opportunity to say anything you would like about this whole idea of book talking before we finish. Anything else you want to add? Uh, just one other thing I was going to say is um, we had talked about knowing sort of keeping an ear out for sort of anecdotes and um you know backstory about the authors and the books like i i've been talking about four dead queens a bit obviously because it's on the cbc shortlist but when i mentioned to the kids that astrid schultz used to write for dreamworks um you know that kind of thing really gets them in because they you know they find that really interesting and they know that her writing will have that kind of filmic quality to it i suppose so knowing those little anecdotes and you know just following following authors on Instagram or you know whatever and you know having a bit of a look at what they're posting and gives you a little interesting um, anecdote to use in your book talks will sometimes make a difference and, and listening to them at a slab reading forum of yeah. course absolutely yeah. <laughs> that's that is the most important thing absolutely Erin <laughs> and Ty any final words from you I don't think I would say anything different to what you and Erin have said. I think, you know, the anecdotal tidbits are all really valuable and um, kids love that. We all love that. We love that voyeuristic sort of feeling like we've just gotten to know something secret or personal about an admired writer or illustrator. Um, yeah, it works really well for me in the bookshop too. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so to to summarise, we just have to know absolutely everything about everything. everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely <laughs> everything about everything. But yeah. it does sometimes feel a little bit like that, and I mm. and I think what uh, what we're so good at as a profession is making all of these connections and bringing it all to the, together for the benefit of our students. So I hope. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. First, to Erin and Ty, you are very, very wonderful to be so brave to just. Uh, be open like this and just to, in this discuss, you know, discussion kind of forum and just share your ideas. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and I just hope that everyone that's online this afternoon has found some really good ideas that they can use with their own students. I think there have been so many that have come up through the chat, through, through our chat and the chat chat. <laughs> so the chat online and the chat in person. Um, and please do also put any ideas you might have into the Padlet. Uh, if anyone has time to do that, that'd be great because that gives us a more permanent way to take the conversation away. So to finish the evening, I'm going to welcome Kristen Gill from the wonderful Kids Bookshop. It is such a shame. I've really enjoyed being online without for our forums during the pandemic. But the one one bad thing about it has been that we haven't had the wonderful bookshop to be able to browse all of the beautiful books. Um, and that has been, um, I think, really the worst thing about it for me uh, in relation to the forum and how they've run. But we still have Kristen here and we still have you <laughs> to tell us about the books. So she is going to finish this evening um, with her top 10 new books. And I think the order forms, if anyone wants to get them from the kids bookshop, is on the Padlet. And is also, there is a link in the email that I sent you all earlier this afternoon too. But Kristen's going to share with us her top 10 of the top 10 new books. Kristen, over to you. Thanks very much, Susan. And actually, I might um, even have sneak in an extra one or two. I just oh, the, oh, my problem is I can never stick to ten because I can't decide what to leave out. So um, I will update that order form on the Padlet tonight um, to include the wonderful authors' books too, because it's been fantastic to hear from them. And I didn't put their books onto the order form, and I should have, and I will. Okay, in the meantime, I'm going to start with some junior fiction. And also, I'm sorry about I don't have a, a an actual presentation for you tonight, but all of these book covers uh, I will also put up onto the Padlet as well. Uh, Dragon Mountain is the first in a series um, that is going to be called um, Dragon Legend. Uh, sorry, the Dragon Realm series. This is the first in the series, and uh, it, the second one will be in released in March 2020, so not terribly long between books. Uh, Warrior Dragon, Secret Mountain, set in China, lots of action. Uh, I, I think this is a really um, interesting new and really fun uh, action-packed new series for um, readers in that upper primary, lower secondary uh, area. This is not the actual cover. This is the proof copy of Katrina Nanstead's new book called We Are Wolves. Um, I haven't read it yet. It is so at the top of my list to read, though. I uh, have heard so much about it. Uh, what I've read about it so far, I am completely curious. And these quotes 
from her publisher, heartbreaking and profound. I encourage readers of all ages to meet the Wolfskinder. Their plight will tear you down, but their resilient spirit will fill you with hope and joy. And from Karen Foxley, this is quite simply one of the most beautiful books I've read for a long time. I feel so much better for having read it, uplifted in the truest sense, and I'm sure it will be a story that is read for many, many years to come. It's historical fiction. It's set in 1945 Prussia. It's about the retreat of some Germans during uh, the Germans during a, a terrible blizzard. Um, and I, I feel like it, it will, it is uh, another take on a on a war story that will be, um, you know, completely uh, absorbing. There's some fantastic teachers' notes to go with that, um, and that's out next month, November. But I'll add that to the um, to the order form too. Um, some senior secondary. Um, this book completely um, caught my attention because it is based on. Uh, what the, the exonerated five? I don't know if you know this story, but it is a story of um, a woman who was raped in Central Park, and five um, men of colour were um, arrested for the rape, and then um, and and imprisoned, and then they were uh, released when they uh, realised that they had been wrongfully imprisoned. Um, it is a Netflix, one of the most watched original Netflix series um, called, sorry. And they see us. Thank you. Um, and so Yusuf, the, uh, the author is right, the authors, it's co-written by Ibi Zobai and Yusuf Salam, and he is one of the exonerated five. He's an artist and a slam poet, and this is written as poetry very accessible but I feel like it, it's a very timely it's very important it's very accessible and a great contribution to kids reading around the Black Lives Matter um, issue so um, I would put this for middle to senior secondary readers um, new book from Jennifer Niven who doesn't like a gorgeous romance probably some people but I love a gorgeous romance and you will know Jennifer's work and this is um, full of romance full of great quirky characters um, and perfect for that middle or lower to middle secondary I guess um, who are looking for that kind of book um, I've included a couple of um, adult books in this selection for senior secondary as well um, my Tita, my sister is based on um, uh, a, a series of contributions from female Aboriginal um, writers, women. Um, I would recommend this for your senior secondary readers because um, there is some content that will be um, slightly confronting around domestic violence and suicide. So perhaps it is one of those books that is a more curated hand sell um, to, your, to your readers. But I, once again, feel like it's a very important book. They're, um, they're short stories. They're um, uh, uh, sometimes just one page, two page. Sometimes it's a poem. Great forward by uh, Leah Purcell. Um, and just an interesting um, insight into basically growing up as an Aboriginal woman here in Australia. So a, a lovely compliment to Growing Up Aboriginal Australia, uh, which was edited by Anita Heiss. Um, and a really interesting collection of, of writings. And one that I think should be in every library. Um, David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet. I love the way he begins by saying, I'm 94, I've had an extraordinary life. It's, not now, it's only now that I appreciate the extraordinary. This is just such an important book. 
um, by someone who we know is extraordinary himself. Um, we need to teach our readers to appreciate the extraordinary, to ponder the extraordinary and to keep fighting for the extraordinary. And so I recommend this hopeful, important and absolute must read book for to you all, to you all as, as readers and as librarians. Okay, on to some picture books. Nala the Koala. Uh, all of the royalties for this gorgeous book go to Wires. It's illustrated by Penny Min Ferguson. It is um, just, I'll show you some of the illustrations. Um, very simple, very spare, but a beautiful book about uh, survival and displacement and uh, friendship um, for early primary readers. You could, you could read it on a number of different levels. So you could have it at early primary, you could have it at preschool, but it's a beautiful looking and readable picture book. Um, this is not new, this is old, but it was a sellout at a recent book fair that we did at your old primary school. So I thought, you know what, I'll tell you all about this one. It's the book of Brilliant Bugs. Um, it's a DK book, so you know what you're going to get with DK. I just feel like it's a really popular um, subject area and always with these DK books, beautifully accessible. So a brilliant book of bugs. And I think this is f absolutely fine for across all primary and into lower secondary as well. Um, I'm absolutely in love with this book. It's called Wild Cities. And it's just a lovely little tour around the world of some of um, cities from around the world, not necessarily the ones that we uh, go to or know of as a matter of course, but um, a couple of double double page spreads on each city that also includes things like the, the kind of um, animals that you would find in that city and their habitats and our habitats and Sydney is included in this book. Um, again, just a lovely, it's not DK, but it's DK-esque in the way that it, it presents this information. But I, I just think it's a beautiful book and a nice dip in uh, without them having to Google about where Berlin is or whatever, they can actually go to the book and have a look at the lovely pictures and the text. Um, again, another popular one at recent book fair, The Ladybird, Big Book of Slimy Things. It is completely serious, this book, but it's so pick upable and so wonderful when you look inside. Sorry, I'm not, I should have done a present, shouldn't I? Um, it says, welcome to the Museum of, sl of Slimy Things. So it looks at slimy things in your home, slimy things outside in the garden, in water, um, slimy things wherever you go kind of thing in any, any different environment, um, but quite factual, interesting. So another really lovely high interest um, nonfiction book. Mm. Every single child needs to read this book. It is one of the most important picture books we will ever, ever get to read. Um, I'm so glad it's back in print. It is so much nicer than the previous one. It is full of um, much more information, beautiful photographs. It is, uh, it is a dip into the impact of the stolen generations for every child and every adult, actually. I love the fact that you can um, work with the music, the song, the text, um, the story. Uh, it's beautifully presented, beautifully produced, some beautiful photographs and, and just a very uh, positive um, story 
on a on a really difficult subject. Um, I, I absolutely love it. And Susan, you and I are going to talk about how we can do some work with Archie next year on this because um, I've been talking to his manager today. She's very, very keen. And next year there will be a young readers edition of um, his adult book, his adult memoir, Tell Me Why, um, in March next year. So keep an eye out for that because then you have the picture book, the young adult and the adult book to work with. And just before I go, you'll all have seen this by now, I'm sure. This is a beautiful tribute by Oliver Jeffers um, to a hopeful future that he's written for his daughter. And, and it's absolutely stunning, of course, um, but, but make sure that's on the shelves too. So that's it from me. I will make sure all of this is on the Padlet and thanks for having me, Susan. Now, was that 10? <laughs> I, think I, I think there was a few more. I cannot imagine what you would have left out, Kristen. That was fantastic. What a wonderful spread. I, I want to read them all. Um, and I'm thinking about Christmas presents, I tell you. I'm really, yeah. <laughs> because I'm not in a library, I'm not buying for um, my school. I'm, I'm going to buy for everybody else instead this year. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. You are always wonderful. Pleasure. We're going to keep going. So thank you to everyone. Um, I will email you in relation to feedback about the event and resources from the afternoon, including the link to the Padlet, the recording of the afternoon and the audio podcast. I do hope uh, that you all found um, that you all found some strategies that you can take away to work with you with your students, that you found some books that you can talk about, that you heard about some heard from some creators that you can promote. Um, and I hope that I'm going to see you all again online or Fingers crossed, it'll be in person. Um, we're already planning a reading forum series for 2021, and I hope that you will all be part of it. And I'd love to hear from any of you if you've got any ideas or feedback or anything at all. And uh, it's lovely to see all the comments in the chat. Thanks, everyone. Uh, so I will sign off then. Please take care, everybody.